In the summer of 1975, two FBI agents were shot and killed after pursuing a vehicle onto private property near the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. This had come after several tense years of strife on the reservation, including the armed wounded knee standoff, where the FBI encircled for 71 days members of the American Indian Movement who were protesting the corruption of the U.S. government-friendly Tribal Leaders Administration. Although two of the AIM members put on trial for the FBI agent's murder were acquitted, the third, Leonard Peltier, is still serving two consecutive life sentences in federal penitentiary despite lack of evidence of his guilt and intimidation and false witness made by the prosecution. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. The military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. Hello, welcome to the show. Today's show is another episode of Adam Watches a Movie. <laughs> Adam, did you watch a movie? Well, as a documentary count as a movie, I had it uh I had it on my screen. Yeah, I so we had we had some trouble rounding up the gang today. This time of year, everybody's pretty busy. So it's just Adam and I today, and uh, we aren't just going to be talking about a movie. But I had I did have Adam watch a movie because uh, I anticipate you're probably not too familiar with the subject. Oh, I I was completely unfamiliar. I did know that the Native Americans in the '70s were taking things over. Uh, I think they took over Alcatraz once. Um, but I wasn't aware of the extent to which this was throughout the country. And it's, I think it's very interesting after watching this and sort of connecting a few dots that the way the FBI was doing effectively COINTELPRO on them, uh, reminded me a lot about what they did in the sixties with the blacks, uh, and then in the nineties and maybe the the whites, they were specifically doing COINTELPRO. Yeah. Yeah, they had they had undercover agents and all that stuff. Yeah, so the film in question is called Incident at Oglala, a Leonard Peltier story. It's a, a film from the early 90s, and it's actually quite well-known, I think. It's uh, Robert Redford. Narrates. As far as, like, political. Yeah, Robert Redford narrates it, uh, or at least the parts that are narrated. He's, there's not a lot of narration yeah, in it. Yeah, he actually wasn't doing much. But it's interviews with various people who were involved. Um, and I think it's actually a pretty good movie. And I think that the whole issue of what AIM was doing in the 1970s and some of the politics surrounding it, I think that there's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. And I think what we should, I guess, begin with just some of the simple facts of the case. It is, of course, I mean, Leonard Peltier is probably the longest uh, serving political prisoner in the world at the moment. 
uh, that's you know still alive. So, then the chances of him be, being pardoned um, are basically zero at this point. I highly doubt that the uh, that Trump will be pardoning Leonard Peltier. Obama didn't do it either, uh, but that was partly the mistake of Leonard Peltier himself and the people who he was listening to because Leonard himself is uh, not exactly the sharpest cookie. And he went for clemency during the first term of the Obama administration, which uh, was really dumb. But he's I think he's up for a parole hearing again in four years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so maybe they'll let him out. I know he, he's almost in his 80s, so it's uh, it's really just a question of if he has to die in prison or not. Um, but what happened there was it was it's really just a case study in a lot of things, a lot of power dynamics in America that I think more and more people who would scoff at the suggestion that the white man on the North American continent will end up with a fate similar to the red man. Uh, that is something that would have been laughed at, I think, uh, by most people 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, they're not everyone. Some people saw this uh, coming quite a bit away. But I think more and more it is becoming clear that the, the parallels are very real, especially between rural white America and the reservations. And we can get into some of that. Uh, let's just, I'd like to hear your impressions, Adam, since you're not familiar with the story. I mean, I'm sure you knew who Leonard Peltier was, roughly. Um, but you didn't really know the details of it. So what are your reactions uh, after having seen this film and learned a bit more about what I mean, place there? I, I, I empathize with these guys a lot. I think it has a lot of um, similarities to... Anybody who grows up uh, thinking that there's some semblance of a justice system uh, and then through experience or insight uh, or just being, uh, I don't know, like blind to all the propaganda or asleep during it, uh, you come to realize that the justice system, especially in the federal court system, and I've heard this uh, statistic that the federal court system has something like a 99% conviction rate. I still have a hard time believing that one, but I heard that from a former black ops operator from the CIA uh, by the name of Chip Tatum, whom I've referred to multiple times. And he had uh, talked to a former FBI agent, uh, Ted Gunderson, uh, at length in some of his interviews back in the 90s about what he was doing during Vietnam. And then after Vietnam was over, he came back and did it in the United States. Uh, and the... Uh, FBI uh, is involved in a lot of this stuff too, uh, mainly domestically, uh, but these days you never know. Uh, and you just get the impression that uh, it's very rigged, and if, if you're targeted, you're really screwed. But a lot of these guys in the film uh, were kind of going through that sort of adjustment process, coming to grips with the fact that they were more than likely framed, uh, but they were sort of at the mercy of the the justice system and they they had to they had to try their best and a couple of them got off but uh I guess Peltier did did not and you know we could speculate as to why but I I do see a lot of parallels with 
I, this is a little bit overdone at this point, but you could sort of talk about Charlottesville in the sense that a lot of these guys were ostensibly doing things that they thought were uh, within the framework of, of the law and it didn't quite matter in the at the end of the day. In the final analysis, if the system doesn't like you, uh, you're going to get the full brunt and power of the system brought down upon you. Uh, so th- that's all I had to say. I mean, I wasn't really surprised in any of this stuff. It's just I could relate and I could see in their faces how they had not understood this when they got into it. Yes, and... What makes you a target of the system is if you have a loyalty to anything uh, that transcends the money system. There is only one group in America to whom there is an exception to that. What you see play out at the on the in the Indian politics at the Pine Ridge Reservation. I thought was very fascinating, namely that you have a situation where you have a lackey, a mixed race lackey of the system. By in this case, it was a man by the name of Dick Wilson, who is just an just an obvious piece of shit. I mean, you can you can watch any of the interviews with him, and he's just he's exactly what you would expect him to be like. And he was bas- he's basically installed as a as a warlord sort of figure over uh, over the Indians and because he's they're federally appointed in this case the president so he's not actually their tribal elder he's somebody who the federal system appointed as their lackey and he's responsible for being able to distribute uh, the federal largesse as well as uh, cut deals to sell off you know this or that piece of valuable property in the context of what was taking place in 1975, this had to do with, uh, I believe, some mineral access to some rare, rare earth minerals of some kind, which I guess the the Black Hills are replete with, is my understanding. But uh, you had a divide between one of the in the in the film one of the one of the Indian says this that you're if you're mixed blood. And you're you have you know higher than half of you is is the white man's blood. You're more likely to be a system lackey, a modernizer, uh, and an apologist for your people's subjugation. Whereas if you have um, the less blood of the conqueror, then you're more likely to be in the traditionalist camp. And so what you had was a struggle between basically system traders and traditionalists who wanted to preserve their folkways of their people. And AIM uh, was basically a response to what had happened with the federal government's relocation of Indians to urban centers. And this started taking place. I mean, they, they had, the federal government had been relocating Indian tribal lands uh, ever since the, uh, the their defeat, that's that has been a part of it. But uh, this was an extension of the process that was meant to assimilate them into the new, you know, global Americanist order. 
you know, in the, in the early days, like in the late 19th century, for example, the kinds of things that they would do would be to prohibit the use of Indian language, uh, Indian religious customs, etc. These would be prohibited, and then they would be put into schools and indoctrinated uh, in the and how to be a good liberal and global well American citizen, but you know future global citizen, right? So AIM was an organization. It was an it was a Red Indian identitarian movement that grew out of the sort of what happened was these the the younger Indians would find themselves put up in a major metropolitan area. There were like seven cities, I think, in particular that were part of this relocation that was taking place in the late 1950s. And so this was a conscious movement that was aiming for some kind of, uh, I, I didn't mean to do that pun, but there it is, uh, that was aiming for some kind of consolidation of the, you know, the wayward Indians and a return in, to uh, the tribal lands as well as uh, political consciousness. And unfortunately, they did get mixed in a lot with the left. And that was, uh, as always, is never a good bedfellow to have. Uh, in fact, uh, Russell Means, who was one of the co-founders of AIM, uh, said as much that, you know, especially at this time, when the, when the incident happened on the Pine Ridge Reservation, as well as actually more importantly, what took place two years prior in 1973, when they occupied the town of Wounded Knee for, I think it was like, seven, was it 70 days, I believe? Yeah, it was 70 days. So the left was nowhere to be found in this case. And in fact, where they found the most of their support was uh, outside of you know Indian communities was from Vietnam veterans. Interestingly enough, but the left, in a major way, turned on Russell Means when he uh, spoke out against the Sandinistas. It was a big no-no, it was a big cause celeb on the left, and he spoke out of, against the Sandinistas because of what they were doing to the uh, the Indians down there, hmm. only killing them. Yeah, that makes so sense. So I, I just want people to get out of their heads this this kind of left and right thing. If anything, uh, from a despite the trappings of leftist rhetoric and some of the um, maybe in the modern day what ethnic uh, what Indian identity politics looks like has maybe gone a different direction because they've managed to bring a bit more of these kinds of things into the fold, but. Um, from, I think, a, a higher viewpoint. I mean, this is, for lack of a better term, uh, a right-wing movement in a certain sense. Namely, it's a characteristic of what you would find uh, in what would be called the right amongst other peoples. But in American politics, it's been lumped in with the left, partly also because of Cold War, the Cold War context of this, and the federal government in their efforts to you know, stamp this out, uh, definitely pulled the red card on the red man. You know, it's like, oh, this is a product of USSR communist subversion, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, you know, this, this is a an identitarian movement that was 
focused on the preservation of a specific people, a specific people's bloodline, and their own uh, goal as being sovereignty. Albeit, you know, sovereignty is not something that anyone's going to hand to you, but people learn this the hard way. So should we go through a little bit more of the background of what actually happened? I think so. So as I mentioned, so let's give some context to what the shooting that took place in 1975. Uh, And the context, most relevant context is what I had just mentioned, which is the occupation of the town of Wounded Knee that occurred two years prior. And this was a major thing. They, the pigs came out in force and basically surrounded the town. And you had the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, traders to their people, um, stooges of the system, as well as military, SWAT, you know, FBI, etc. And in all likelihood, they probably would have just, you know, stormed the town and killed everybody. And, and that's what they were planning to do. The idea was that the military was going to go in and, and uh, you know, kill anything that moves and the FBI is going to come in and grandstand on the corpses and say, you know, this is a police action and we're, we're here to, to make arrests and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there were, and there were arrests afterwards, but I think uh, 500 some actually, though most, most people got off out of that. That was a kind of, it was a, it was a fluke in a certain sense, but they came back anyways. Uh, this was the purpose of it was they wanted to see the Indians wanted to see the, Treaties as they were signed with the federal government enforced uh, as they said that they would be. <laughs> and they felt that they were not being enforced Good and they luck. were not. You know? So they uh, did the only thing that you can really do uh, if you're really, if you really want to go there, you know, you're going to have to use violence and force. And but Nick, this piece did. of paper says that you're supposed but, to be nice to me. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I, this I don't is why I never understood were, the law. Naive. It's like, really? I think that they... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's... I mean, they weren't... I mean, some of these people... Like, Russell Means was not... He, he understood the law pretty well. I mean, he he was able to get himself uh, acquitted on, like, 11 or 12 different occasions. You know, he wasn't... You know, Russell Means was not a dumb-dumb. Leonard Peltier, yeah, probably not not the brightest, but uh, Russell Means hardly was a, was a dummy. And he was, of course, involved in the 1973 action that wounded me. Um, but, you know, it, it ended with less bloodshed than uh, it could have. I mean, there were, I think, only two people who were killed and one was paralyzed by basically just the feds, like, sh- shooting from, from the air into the town, I think, is how those, how those casualties happened. But... Uh, this was what had gone on two years prior, and following that was a series of escalations on the part of the quizzling uh, Fed stooge, uh, D- uh, Dick Wilson uh, presidency, I guess you'd say, is the uh, president or the uh, chairman, I guess is the, both, both are the, both are correct, who was again feder- federally appointed. And so what he, what him and his, um, his, his goons, and they were, they're actually called goons because they were the, the guardians of Oglala or uh, something like this. But anyways, they were, they were basically a, uh, 
a kind of a counterinsurgency mercenary squad that would go around and beat and probably murder people. There were all kinds of murders that were taking place, you know, more so than usual in the reservation in those two years after the wounded knee occupation. So tensions were very high and COINTEL was running, you know, a pace. And so you have a lot of mistrust and confusion. It's, it's doing its job, right? Sowing distrust and putting in provocateurs and things like this. So this is the environment in which two federal pigs drive on to, to a reservation in Indian country and find themselves in a shootout. That's that's basically the only accepted facts of the case because there's a lot about the actual shootout that is very murky and unclear. Most importantly, it's unclear what these pigs were doing there in the first place because nominally they had a warrant for a man named uh, Jimmy Eagle who was uh, accused of stealing cowboy boots, okay? But he wasn't even there on the reservation when they when they showed up. So it's pretty paper thin as to what they're even doing there. It's not clear who started shooting first, but what is clear is that when gunfire started happening, people who were in, you know, camped with their their women and their children and stuff were like, "Oh, there's shootings taking place. Grab your rifle." Like, what's what the fuck's going on here, man? And uh gunfire was exchanged. Uh, the the pigs were wounded to the point where they were lying on the ground, and apparently they were then eventually executed. They keep in mind they were also wearing just plain clothes, driving these old cars, and uh, they had no no one knew who these people were. They just knew that they were armed men, armed white men. So that's that's what took place, and th- after this, three men were arrested. Uh, in connection to this. And two of those men were tried and acquitted in uh, Cedar Rapids. We can talk a little bit about that trial. It's kind of interesting. The third man, of course, would be Leonard Peltier, who initially uh, absconded to Canada. Would you like to add anything at this point, Adam? No, that, that I think that was helpful. I, I think people need to understand uh, that the feds were, I mean, who, who wanted them there? First of all, I guess that's my first question. Uh, my impression is that they were trespassing and yes, they had, uh, they had been called on the great, uh, great case of the missing boots. But I mean, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? Uh, wh- yeah. Why don't you guys go do something uh, that helps maybe, you know, the actual United States or, just don't do your job. I mean, I, I, I'll stop there. But that part is 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 ridiculous on the surface of it. So that they're they're in there in sovereign territory, and they're being treated as invaders yeah, it's as they should property. be. Yes, and that was one one thing that's really uh, I liked a lot in the documentary was the uh, the system, the various system pigs that they're interviewing, a prosecutor and some other uh, some other other uh, piggy piggies uh, they were just they're just absolutely aghast at the this just shows you these people's mentality absolutely aghast at the, the even the suggestion 
that self-defense could ever be invoked when you're dealing with uh, FBI. Yeah, we're from the government. We're here to help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how could you how could you not appreciate me? I live off your tax dollars as a parasite and bother you every day and uh, I expect you to respect me with the respect that's coming to me. Uh what's wrong with you? I mean this is I I just if you ever have been to Washington DC, this is kind of the mentality that drives these people and why they couldn't stand Trump. He's like you guys are all a bunch of incompetents. You know, you, you don't actually know how to produce anything. You live off of sucking the blood of people who actually work and you want people to thank you for it. And when people don't, you know, you get the gears in motion to to crush them. I mean, it's just this arrogance that drives normal people crazy. And I don't know how anybody can work in the government and not yeah, well, have I... some humility about that fact. Speaking of incompetence, that's the other thing about this story. I mean, leaving out all questions of right or wrong. Uh, these, two, these two men are going into Indian country with a pair of like 38s, right? There's two men with like service revolvers. Part of the dynamics of the shootout, too, is apparently they were trying to get to their rifles in the trunk, but um, did not make it there. The Indians were, were shooting rifles. So you're going into hostile territory uh, as a pale face, undergunned, undermanned, to do what exactly? find some guy who maybe stole boots is that really what you're doing there we don't know nobody really knows what they were doing there but whatever it is it doesn't seem like it was very smart but then again we're these are these are you know federal pigs we're talking about these aren't you know well the thing about the fbi that i always have to struggle with is they have very ostensibly very high recruitment standards and you typically have to have an advanced degree and the entrance examinations are pretty competitive in that you filter out a, at least 90% of the people that try to get in. So these people, whether that's a combination of intelligence or discipline uh, or both, uh, are not completely uh, incapable people. But the culture of the FBI, I think, is where I have issues with. They're supposed to be stopping criminals i guess but uh, every time i hear about these guys you know there's there's some um i mean take the trump case for example i mean the amount of uh negligence and fraud and uh incompetence and just things that didn't make any sense at all and why are they even bothering with this sort of thing um it makes me question the politics of them quite a bit and it really just seems like uh they're designed to terrorize people who get out of line. Uh, sure, you know, there's, yeah, there's going to be some bank robber or something they catch once in a while, but um, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's sad. Yeah, and in the case of Indian politics, they're the ones from the federal government who are responsible for dealing with the Indians in the event of some kind of, uh, I guess, more severe case. Uh, so following this, yeah, so you have these two dead pigs 
and a trial takes place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where uh, two men, Robert Robidoux and uh, Daryl Butler, are uh, tried for this for the execution specifically, I believe, of the uh, of the feds. And there's a lot of security theater that takes place here. You know, they're they're hyping up to like the jury that you know, I am terrorists or whatever are gonna gonna come uh, intimidate people or something like this. You know, they're really trying to ham it up. And they were, I think, that the the feds were shocked. In the documentary, one of the guys is like, one of the jurors is interviewed, and he says something to the effect that. Uh, no, they, there was no intimidation by AI, by AIM people. If anything, they were afraid of the feds, and that when they when they handed over the not guilty, he said that it, the U.S. Marshals looked like they wanted to kill all twelve of them. <laughs> but they nonetheless they they were acquitted, and I think that the main reason they were, they like the the feds just didn't put enough work into railroading it. They, I think that they just might, my, my take is that they assumed that what, what were the charges on them sufficiently railroaded? Um, just murder okay, of, this of is, the agents. I'm, is that what it was? Or I, I don't know if I'm going to get it right. Okay. So I, yeah. Uh, well, I think that they, it was aiding and embedding as well. Like the charges oh. that they ended up giving <laughs> that <Pelletier> one <laughs> were, were yeah. You're an accessory. Pel- dude. Peltier was given yeah. just straight up first degree murder. Yeah, and they, I, I'm not going to say because I actually don't know the the specific legal details. I never found that to be especially important. Mm. What I do know is that the main reason for their acquittal was that the jury had the nerve to want proof that they were the men who actually pulled the trigger at the uh, at the close range uh, execution. And there was no such evidence. And there's all kinds of other shenanigans that are typical whenever you're, you know, whenever you're dealing with anything like this. It's going to be a lot of, a lot of bullshit. A lot of really dubious witnesses. You know, this, this, lessons were learned though here when they, uh, when they went after Leonard Peltier. Because I think as to the explanation you asked earlier, Adam, why they went so hard, why he ended up going to prison and they got off it's just because they failed the first time and someone had to go down for yeah. this yeah and so if if they failed that time like peltier had to go there was no there's no way around it so how they got the extradition for peltier is pretty pretty notorious they basically got this woman who's aptly named myrtle poor bear because she was a she was a poor and uh, also somewhat rotund woman uh she was uh, not a, she's very low IQ and probably had mental illness as well. Um, she was just this is she's the exact type that the feds like to use in these kinds of cases. I mean the the literal legal term that one of the guys on the documentary used was she was an incompetent, and I, I mean we haven't heard these types of words used in a long time to refer to people, but I mean you you heard her talking she just look like a deer in the headlights she didn't understand what was going on and oh they came to my house and they told me to do this and okay i was afraid and i did this yeah, i they mean threatened, and they threatened yeah. her no I, and look they I, what they did they was, her, they was, was cruel no question um but they, they took advantage of her very easily and it was uh sort of sad 
Oh, it was very sad. Yeah, she and she, uh, despite not really understanding much of what's going on, uh, she recanted too and was, you know, yeah. she explained. She tried also to to get to be able to testify on behalf of the defense. Yeah, which I think at that point they said, you know, just get this woman out of here. But uh, she, yeah, she was she was gaslit and threatened. And she she claimed that she was Leonard Peltier's girlfriend at the time. He, they had never met. Yeah, uh, she was not there. They told her like, and if they had, I don't think that would have been a love connection. Lot. Yeah, well, so they used this, and not only that, they took three separate affidavits from her that all that contradicted each other. And so this was the pretense that they had to get the extradition of Leonard Peltier from Canada. And I'm back, and then the trial is is well known. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the ballistics evidence, um, accusations that the FBI crime lab basically swapped out a, a firing pin on the uh, AR ball carrier. And I mean, this is this is what they do. So I I would just take at face value as probably exactly what happened. But the point was like he was going to go to prison and. He went to prison, okay? And he's been in prison and remains in prison and likely will die in prison unless in uh, 2024 he's let out on parole. Well, I thought some of the details of how they tried him were interesting. The evidence the FBI presented uh, was trying to link his firearm to the, um, the shooting and... I don't remember all of the ballistics analysis they did. It was kind of boiled down to something simple, though, that made it look like the FBI may very well have just concocted the murder weapon uh, from the vault and had a guy go down to the shooting range because they were able to match like the firing pins uh, and the the casings, and they could see that I think the the presented uh, murder weapon had the wrong firing pattern, uh, pin pattern, as uh, Peltier's weapon. That's my basic understanding of it. Um, and that, that just looks... I mean, I don't even know what law that is falls under, but that's obviously fraud uh, of some sort um, and, I think, grounds for a mistrial. But Yeah, and bas- basically it was, it was a classic railroading where they, they even swapped out the judge prior to the trial. I <laughs> uh, got a judge who was... Who is more? Uh, who, who they could count on a little bit more? Yeah. And the uh, there was all kinds of you know phony uh, phony witness testimony and stuff. It it was you know it's ma- many such cases type situation here. I mean, they're if, if the feds are really gunning for you like this, like they're they're gonna get what they want because it's their system. Yeah, I'll I'll say it again. If anybody really wants to see how vicious things can get for you, uh, check out Ted Gunderson's interviews with Chip Tatum. It's the FBI meets the CIA, and they're both uh, they're both kind of tired of both of their organizations, respectively, and they're kind of airing the dirty laundry. Uh, it was filmed back in the nineties. Very. Good I will stuff. definitely caution viewers against Ted Gunderson, though. Uh, uh, the other stuff he did, a, I'm not even familiar not exactly with, but I, I just watched him because of the stuff that he did with Chip, and I thought Chip was yeah, I, I, fascinating. That's fine. I, I just mean overall, uh, I'm not going to provide an endorsement of, of Ted Gunders. Yeah, he had some weird yeah. stuff with uh, kind of the precursors to what we now call Pizzagate, but 
It was, uh, I don't know if he did Franklin Scandal, but back then the pedo stuff was still a thing. I mean, it's been a thing for a long time, but they tried to make uh, headway with it, and I don't know what he did or didn't do correctly, but um, that was how I had heard the name. Um, and then, yeah, just, but check out Chip Tatum for sure. So that's, again, this is not going to, we're not going to do a deep dive into the trial. Uh, that's just, that's not Maybe if Hank was here, he would have some, some interesting takes for that. He's, right. he's good, really good with the legal stuff, but that's not my thing. And, uh, cause I just write it off anyways. I, I don't, I, I think that. <laughs> Law in America is largely a myth. I I have the same it's, feeling. It's <laughs> I mean, it's usually like the people with the best lawyers win, but it's like, well, shouldn't just the law yeah, decide that? Lawyer. It's like, yeah. you know, I, I've always dis- been disgusted by how yeah. it, it's it's run. It's like, well, look. I mean, he, and this whole situation you know, started because yeah. the federal government wasn't living up to its own to its own uh, promises, legal well, legal well, promises. Okay, so now that we've kind of reviewed the uh the case maybe we can kind of dive into some of the the culture and the motivations around american indian movement and maybe the, some of the conflicts they were having with the the local communities uh and then also within the communities there are further divides with the traditionalists and uh the modernists i guess as we call them um i think that's very apparent in any society where you have people who want to uh, yes. merge with it's, the successful horse, even though it may not be their own. And then people who want to resist that. And it's, it's a struggle. I mean, we've seen this throughout history, um, to preserve kind of ancient traditions. So this is, I okay. I'll say a few, I'll give my piece then on Indians in general. Um, maybe some of what I'm going to say is harsh, but, uh, <clears throat> my attitude is that these are conquered people. And I believe that it would have probably, it would have been better to have just physically exterminated them. And I say that with respect, you know, these are, these are the enemies of my ancestors. I definitely don't buy the leftist bullshit about like Indian genocide. These were wars. Okay. And the red men killed women and children. Yeah, I agree. Without mercy. Okay. Yeah. This wasn't, I I don't have any like crocodile tears for them, but I respect my enemies. It's my ancestors' enemies, I should say. They're not my enemies today by any means, but they were at time an enemy of my ancestors. And I pay them the respect that I believe they deserve this in this capacity. And it's a far more ignoble fate to be slowly genocided by the liberals, you know, by the assimilationists. That. I mean, they are on their way out. Every every year, Indian languages go out, yeah. and they're faced the same problem as all kinds of traditional peoples face, where it's very hard to compete against the lure of the of the modern economy. You're going to, you know, the demands yeah. of the incentives of the modern world. It's not just the lure; it's the power. It's, it's the power of the modern economy. I mean, if the you're power, like, yeah. hey, I'm and not that, gonna use uh, fire. I'm gonna use, you know, just like rubbing my hands together. I mean, no, you have to. Technology is really what it's about, and it's tough uh, when you, you know, there's problems with technology. But the problem is, and Ted Kaczynski has pointed this out. And he's an authority on the subject of the problems of technology. He's admitted that if there's a group, two groups, group A decides to 
forego technology and just live a sort of sustainable primitive lifestyle and then group b decides to let her rip you know run the diesel engine as long as it needs to and and steamroll over group a cut all the trees down but meanwhile they're protected behind uh, armored personnel carriers and helicopters i mean who which group is going to win you know so if you're group a and you have these deep held beliefs you have to be able to defend yourself if nothing else and the other thing that's really tough not just like physical defense it's the psychological and economic defense because and this is what nick i think was saying is the lure of group b it it gives you a lot of goodies like there's a lot of uh material gains and a lot of your talent is going to bleed away and that's the brain drain that has affected many cultures and societies throughout the planet uh including this this country uh with the small towns emptying out for all the the big metroplexes so you know i don't have any easy answers here um the global capitalist the, the global capitalist system with you know in its vehicle the the american empire is hostile to any people who want to eschew it and return to any kind of focused traditional uh, living this this is the enemy of the system yeah and they can't allow it to happen because someone else might get some ideas too I mean, the Amish always come to mind, but obviously, you know, they don't even have guns. So I, it, it's sort of like, okay, they, they must be paying taxes pretty well because, you know, the government is always going to want some, want its cut. So there, there's that one always though. It's intriguing. I will put out, put that out there. Similar. Okay. And similar. The other things that you're up against too, are the traders in your midst are going to be given the full sanction and financial backing of the federal government. And that's how that power structure works. Yes, that's Even right. Even if you're despised by pretty much everyone. Again, go back and uh, we, we did a show on it, but I definitely recommend the book, uh, The Dictator's Handbook, to really just, it just shows the mechanics of this. And Dick Wilson, the, pre- the Ogallala uh, chairman, uh, is a, a textbook case of, of this of how of how corruption works, especially how treason is profitable and how it allows you to you can sell out your people and so, you can be hated and you can. So he was power like if you the town gangster, right, right? He was the guy running around in Cadillacs yeah, he and he the, had his like thug crew. Was, like, Didn't they literally the call them like like goon squads or something? Yeah, they were literally goon squads because of the the acronym. Yeah. Again, I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things I thought was really interesting was the racial dimension to this. Mm. And you see that amongst other peoples, too. You'll have a like you'll have a American Negro organization and you'll have like some mulatto or something who claims to be uh, operating on behalf of of the American Negroes. But that's bullshit. And everyone knows it (laughs) because they're really just advancing themselves they're always the one they don't care about their own people and those are the kinds of people that the system wants they that's why the the system is opposed to real racial identity not just not just white people they're opposed they don't want people to have a sense of themselves independent from the system that's that's a big no-no okay except for once again there is one people that has an exception well and I, I think people if you're, can, people can if guess. If you're loyal to anything that is not the system, you're an enemy of the system. Okay, so let me let me throw some just uh, devil's advocate 
um, thoughts at you, which uh, I'm sure you'll have some answers for. But what do you have to say about, I mean, the obvious, like, Black Lives Matter, um, La Raza? I don't believe Black Lives Matter is a Negro organization. I believe it is a militant white liberal system organization. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. And I, Jewish. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, heavily it's a Jewish, Jewish white liberal Soros. system operation. It, yeah. There was actually, dude, there was actually a really funny video from, um, I think, Inglewood uh, that came out of that where... Uh, the like the actual Negro community organizers in their particular hood confronted the uh, the BLM people as they came in because these are the these people are trying to make peace with the their local pigs and stuff and you know that's their role and they see these agitators come in a lot of them are pale faces and a lot of them are hook nosed and they're like hey what are you what are you what are you doing here what's going on here you know. No, I don't believe BLM is like it. That's a perfect example of a model of a of a phony racialist uh, of I shouldn't say racialist phony identitarian kind of movement. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, as far as uh, Negro organizations in America, I think that only Nation of Islam represents yeah, a viable. Yeah. 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 And there was some really interesting kind of I mean, honestly just look at who gets thrown like, off of Twitter. I mean, Farrakhan just got thrown off. I mean, it just tells you, you know, uh, if if you're if you're getting shot at, you know, you're over the target. I mean, but go ahead, please. Yeah, well, so I'm also a big admirer of the late Russell Means, who died recently. And R remind the audience and myself. I mentioned, I believe, Russell. Well, he was one of the original founders of the American Indian Movement, okay. and he was a major participant in the 1973 occupation at Wounded Knee. Probably what he is best known for up until you would see him in films like Last of the Mohicans and Natural Born Killers, and uh, he did the voice of uh, Pocahontas' father in Pocahontas' film. Uh, he got some criticism from the radicals for that, because by this time he had kind of distance himself, I guess, from AIM, um, kind of at the close of the 70s. And he went into making, being in movies and stuff. Um, he was also, he also ran for president on the ticket. Uh, he was ran for VP on the ticket with uh, Larry Flynn. <laughs> Strange bedfellows. He's a character, man. He lived an interesting life. Um, but what I found, what I always thought was most interesting about Russell Means was when he would do interviews with liberals like there i especially npr interviews i was trying to find this one that i heard many years ago and i i couldn't find it i found a few others but one in particular i really wanted to find because what's interesting about watching someone like russell means deal with the liberal is he's going he's taking positions that are actually probably similar to maybe what you and I would have to say uh, to some swarmy NPR host, Adam. But he's doing it as a red man, and so they have to afford yes, him they have to let a him leeway talk. that they would mm. never give to us. Yeah. Yes. They have to and put the red carpet down. It and, puts them in yeah. really uncomfortable positions, and it's it's often just delicious. Yeah. So. One of my favorites that I unfortunately could not find was an interview with this NPR woman, probably a Jewess. Terry Gross. Who was, 
I don't know. This is years ago. Yeah. But she was up talking him over the question. And this is one he always liked to do is he liked to say that uh, he was against the term Native American. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's a catch all term, first American Indian. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a couple problems with it. I think part of it, I think that, I think Russell was a very smart man in a certain way. Like he, he was, he was a clever cookie, man. He got, this is a man who got himself out of like 11 different convictions. Right. So I think he was, he took that up deliberately to poke at them. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, because exactly. of the reality. Yeah. yeah. But native American is their preferred term yeah. as in system liberals preferred term. Yeah. And the term itself is a term of liberal imperialism. You are the holy people. There's a couple things that are going on. Well, so it's a term where the identity of the American Indian is tied to the political entity known as the United States. Well, American and Indian, it also they both have America. But go ahead, explain. I'm curious they what the difference is. They both have America, but... So they both have America, but that one is a how someone like Russell would see it would be that American Indian America in the context of American Indian is a geographical description, namely a shorthand for North American Indians. And America Native American is a system politically tied term that uh, identifies them in relationship to the political entity of the United States. And there's other things that go into that too. Namely, it's in the, it's in the interest of, uh, the, of the empire, broadly speaking, to have less narrow identities for these people because so that's why you see also these days is moving more into just like no, no longer is it, I think the in vogue term now, is indigenous peoples, which refers to all kinds. It refers to, uh, you know, Polynesians in Hawaii, yeah. and it refers to to the mestizos uh, or know, that actually the people, that's various debatable peoples too, because they're mixed. America. But yeah, it's yeah, much the Indios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and these are different peoples, and that's that would be Russell Means's point is that, I mean, keep in mind he's he's an identitarian activist, right? This so his focus is on specific uh, on a specific identity in his case the lakota peoples well yeah th- this is what always confused me it's like why don't they just call themselves by their tribal affiliations i mean maybe they somehow need that group cohesion for political me- reasons but they never really got along historically and india is a completely different place. It was just an accident of history that it, it got labeled to the people here. But I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that other than the fact that he might want to rub uh, Terry Gross or whoever it was, uh, his nose in it, that he prefer American Indian as opposed to, you know, Lakota or, you know, Sioux or, or something like that. But I, I can't, I can't speak for him. I think there's, it's not necessary to overthink it. What the important point is that, American Indian was their term. The term the American the American Indians accepted and the term Native American was something that the liberals were mm-hmm. uh, putting forward. 
Yeah. That that's I think really what it comes down to that's that's most important. And what what's funny about that interview though is that she's basically lecturing him on why he should accept this term. <laughs> I know. Don't you love it? <laughs> the arrogance. <laughs> but there's things that they can that he could get away with saying that we would never be allowed to get away with. Yeah. For example, uh, Russell Means was against uh, intermarriage, and not just intermarriage like with the white man or, or you know, the Negro or something like that, but uh, the tribe should marry within tribes. Oh, wow. Within Hopi and Lakota within Lakota. Yeah. Um, this has a lot of parallels to the Muhammad Ali interview he did with that British liberal who was uh, telling him mm-hmm. about yeah. the end of race. Well, those He's are like, always going to be the yeah. best because they're the ones who... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, no, he just, Muhammad Ali was just like, hey, look, uh, if you're a bluebird, you don't uh, you don't mate with the blackbird. I mean, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Then he turned into just a brown bird, which nobody likes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the uh, th- those are always the best ones. And, you know, you have Muhammad Ali or something like Russell Means. You know, they have, it, it's, it's fun to watch, you know. But uh, he was, I mean, he was also a libertarian in a certain sense, you know. Uh, so he's, I don't know, Means was an interesting guy. Uh, definitely maybe somewhat controversial amongst his people for his participation in, in Hollywood. I know that if, uh, you know, putting on my, my, uh, my feather, it's, uh, I, I could understand why people would object to that. I, I don't see participating in the Hollywood uh, system to be in any way really product. He saw it as a, the kind of the best thing he could do for his people is like put a certain kind of image out there. Uh, I, I don't think that Hollywood is not the friend to anybody. Well, you, you remember the, so uh, the acceptance speech that Marlon Brando didn't show up for and he had that uh, Indian chick do it for him. And it was uh, supposedly about yeah. protesting, yeah. I don't know, the Navajo coal power plant or something. But, that that was an awkward moment for Hollywood, and aside from the specifics of it, I just enjoyed watching the, uh, the audience members squirm. I, I can't stand them, so that was that was an interesting one. Yeah, another thing that another thing I would say about Means is that his he was in favor of the uh, total destruction of the BIA. So so do you know any of his all the wrong boxes? Okay. What's that? No, I was just curious if you know what his criticisms or complaints were about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I mean, I could oh, imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, what? Okay, go ahead. So what? It, it was a, it was an organ. It was a, a government body that uh, was used to basically perpetuate a system the the small small tribal politics corruption. It's it's. Uh, it's what creates entities like Dick Wilson. Yeah, right? it's almost like a and he even as a system. it's kind of funny as a libertarian. Russell Means' attitude was that like American the American uh, working class shouldn't be having to pay for this either. <laughs> no shit. Oh man, that that just hits yeah. home because you know so. if you if you look at how the tax structure works, uh, the rich don't really pay taxes because they can hire the lawyers to figure out and the accountants to figure out how to not do it, and so it's the middle class ends up paying for a lot of these uh, government programs that um, 
really solidify the control of the people at the top, even though it seems like it's helping the people at the bottom, really what it does is just puts them on a plantation where they're dependent and they can't break out. Um, but and he saw that he, he yeah. saw that that was what was really driving them further into oblivion was a dependence on the system. And that includes also things like the, the, the education system and stuff. And that's another one yeah. that when you, yeah. some of these interviews, he'll, uh, they'll, they'll in their condescending way, be like, Oh, but you know, but what about education? It's so like the best thing. So Nick, I, education. I, I know you're a fan of the, the new series. Kevin Costner put out a uh, Yellowstone, right? Okay, I, I am a fan of the first season, and I thought the have second you, season went downhill really fast. Yeah, and I didn't you, bother to watch the third. Okay, so I've not seen the third. I liked either. a lot of where it was going uh, in the first season, and I'm a big the reason I don't really watch a lot of TV programs ever. Uh, but I I am a fan of Tyler Sheridan, who wrote that. Mm. I like I think he uh, I like his the movies he's made so. I, uh, I did watch it. Um, in the first season, I enjoy a lot. So I don't remember what season. I'm guessing season two. But the reason I brought this up was the love interest of the kind of uh, black sheep of the family, the the white kid in that's uh, oh, Kevin yeah. Costner's son. Oh, yeah, you know what's son. really funny about that? What's that? She's not even an Indian. She looks Asian. It's like Filipino or something. I don't even know what she is. She but. is. Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah, she's a she's a hopper. There you go. There you yeah, go. Yeah, she's not an Indian. <laughs> okay, but anyway, um, the the main so, the main Indian uh, mm-hmm. protagonist, the, the bit with him, is he thought he was Mexican his whole life, and then like realized he was Indian, <laughs> and then decided to like get into Indian politics. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let let me explain why I brought this up. So the girl uh, is in love with. Uh, so the Indian girl likes the white guy and the white guy likes the Indian girl. They have a kid. Uh, but there's tension for obvious reasons because the the ranchers are white and they're sort of at odds with uh, the tribes who want to, you know, use the land for, I don't know, buffalo instead of cattle, etc. cetera. Uh, even, you know, on top of the deep-seated history between the conflicts between the white man and the red man. Uh, but makes for an interesting uh, plot element, obviously. And the woman and the kid uh, of Costner are sort of living off of the ranch. But by season two, the kid comes back and she uh, has to come to grips with that because of the animosity between the two groups. And there's some struggles. But what she does is she's an educator. And I guess... um, we don't see too, too much of like the curriculum per se in the classroom setting that she's teaching in, which was, I think, uh, I think maybe high school I could be mixing some of this up, but the main reason I brought this up was, was she, college. She like, gets an offer yeah. though. And this is what I, that may be what you're thinking of or what I'm thinking of at least was she gets an offer from a liberal, uh, arts college to teach a indigenous people's course and it's got all of the trappings of the NPR host but in sort of a way that she even takes it uh, to a different dimension where she's like 
she's almost like more of an American Indian movement type. Uh, and it's, it's like they're a little bit caught off guard because she's kind of being very militant against uh, the white people who are paying her to be there. And they kind of want her to push for that reconciliation narrative um, under, of course, the aegis of liberalism. And she doesn't quite want to do that. And I don't necessarily take sides in this. I just thought that dynamic was very reminiscent of a lot of college campuses that we've been experiencing over the past, uh, I don't know, 20 years at least. Uh, and that uh, that Evergreen College guy, uh, blanking on his name, but I think he was making a lot of uh, comments about how uh, how crazy the culture has gotten. The fact that they would even offer her that job to begin with, to me, is what is the most offensive. But I don't know. You can agree with what she says or not. It doesn't really matter. I just think the system is is very co-opting of types like her, uh, and and the and the students as well, and wants to teach this particular narrative. And if you if you go away from it, then uh, you know there's trouble. Yeah, it's a it's like it's Mick Mick identity, right? I don't even know anymore. I don't know anymore. The the synthetic trappings of this as a way. Also, they want to bring everyone into the fold in the, you know, the broader liberal coalition. And hopefully it's like kill whitey is going to be enough to keep all these people together. And maybe it will for a little while. I don't know, but there it's, you know, it's the classic liberal racism. It's, you know, these people, I think, would be better served by an America that was more genuinely racist in the sense that they were if they were treated, they are treated as enemy. They were treated as enemies of the system. At least the AIM people and their radicals were treated more or less as enemies of the system. I mean, they were in the 1970s. Absolutely. And I think that that's a more healthy thing for preserving a people's identity in the world to have enemies like that that are out and out enemies it's americanism is much more dangerous it's far more destructive of traditional societies ethnic communities what have you than warfare the 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 real genocide of the indians is not the indian wars the real genocide is americanism that's that's how they're that's how they're going out they're going out through assimilation and through, you know, economic incentives that bring them away from their land and into the American capitalist system. Okay, now with that being said, I think I, I'd like to conclude today's program by returning back to the question I asked originally. And that is, is there going to be a similar fate to the, the white man on the North American continent? as to the red man. And there's a, there's a few things I want to say going into that. Um, it's interesting because I actually have, uh, not to get into that the game of uh, that we were talking about earlier with Indian versus Native American, et cetera, but I, I have to be honest, I do have a similar attitude with, uh, with the, the word American for a very similar reason. On one hand, I'm as an American as you could possibly be. But on the other hand, there are different meanings to that, um, 
and the commonly accepted one is one I absolutely don't identify with. So I will say that I know that some people object to that comparison because they'll say something like, this is a small minded, um, and provincial and a provincial attitude that you're basically, if you think this way, you're going to ghettoize yourself in some respect. And to that, I say, I don't, this isn't about how I want things to be or wish that things were. This is, I'm just looking at things as a, as I see it as a, as a political fact, uh, namely white rural areas. Uh, I live in such an area are not altogether different from the Indian reservations that are also not too far from where I live. Okay. You have a lot of the same problems where, uh, you know, you have a lot of uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, people in and out of, out of jail and prison for just dumb shit. Uh, in fact, not too long ago, I encountered a man sleeping on the dirt road and, uh, near where I live. This was a white man. I mean, that's like a classic, like Indian thing to be passed out. (laughs) Or Aborigine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Or Abos. Yeah. I understand that. That's a thing there. Like it's, there is the parallels. I I know may make some people uncomfortable, but they're very real. And we also have this process of liberal colonization of these rural areas where you have, the people, the white people who live in, you know, the, 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 for lack of a better term, the natives, right? Uh, the native whites are put at odds. They're, although they outnumber the liberals, the system loyalists, uh, those people come in with money, buy things up, close down industries because, you know, like whatever, coal is icky or some shit. They just, they find every way that they can sabotage the ability of the people the working people to make a living, they flood drug. They, you know, they're, they, they, well, they, they get rid of all the logging, all the mining, products. anything that a normal, yeah. uh, normal Joe could manage to uh, keep down and pay for uh, a family. If you ever had one, uh, those are all gone. And so you're forced to be and, uh, and if some, whites, a garbage collector or something, and, and but if, you know, these rural whites get uppity in some way you have, the local pigs are very similar to the, what you had with the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They're basically half-wit traders who are easily bought off, stupid and violent, and they'll do what they're told by their bosses who represent the liberal system. And if that's not enough, they'll bring in the federal pigs and they'll kill your family. Okay? So I, I'm living here in the world of political facts yeah i don't know if uh, if people object to that and they want to say something like oh well once we we have to take back the country america is ours you know man like okay it's nice nice thinking i ultimately i in the long run i agree but that's just you're so far from that as a reality that it's that's that's all it is is wishful thinking you need power i don't believe that there's any route to power that comes through a victim mentality uh I don't think that at all. And I don't think that people like Russell Means thought that either. Namely because white people are still the majority in America, Mm -hmm. which is incredible to think about when you consider that they're being treated 
in, in the rural places where white people are disenfranchised, don't have any real power or money, they're being treated no different than conquered Indian tribes were being treated. Very similar dynamics. I, like, I, I don't think you can get around the parallels at all. And this was a precursor. What the FBI was doing here in the 1970s was a easy precursor to the events that would then come to pass in the 80s and 90s, and the high-profile federal killings that took place of mostly white people. I mean, in Waco, yeah, there were non-whites, but it was majority whites. Which also puts a little bit of a, you know, that that's one kind of critique I will put forward against. I don't think that the AIM people really understood the system uh, outside of their, there are things that they really didn't understand about America. I definitely don't think they understood aspects of American right, probably because American right was always, you know, kind of on the fringes and not very good at reaching out and cooperating with other people, but they definitely got burned by the left because to the left, they were just props. You know, they were, it was hip for a little while and nobody really cares. And then I think I mentioned earlier how they turned against Russell Means when he, when he came out against the Sandinistas. There's a lot of little controversies like that. Uh, they also got mad at him for associating with Farrakhan, you know, similar reasons, but, uh, I gave you my spiel, Adam. What, what do you think about uh, the parallels between the red man and the white man? Yeah, and going forward, what, a, what would you? It's a fascinating topic. Uh, I have thought about it before. Um, I have also seen others bring this up uh, with kind of the Twitter tier meme of, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm an American citizen you know go back immigrants and then the uh you know i i was born here i'm a native kind of thing white guy saying that and then the guy behind him is like the american Indian. he's like yeah man like now you know how i feel um i think the difference though is as you point out the whites are still the majority that is changing it's already changed in california where latinos outnumber whites um some people will debate that with me but i i think it's pretty clear if you go to california uh if you look at official statistics that that is somewhat indicated and the uncounted population well they're always quick pushing them over classify latinos as white if they can well that's part of it too uh as well but be that as it may the main point i'm trying to get at is uh that is sort of a a a prognostication of the future but it is not the now and it it's it i think it remains to be seen if whites are going to either grow a pair or grow a brain and see their fate paralleling a lot of other native groups uh and if they have enough time to stop it right now the way things are trending i don't have a lot of optimism but a lot of people saying with Trump looking like he's going to get pushed out of Washington, um, that may push a few more whites over to the side of uh, dissident politics, which I'm sure that will happen. But again, it's always that critical mass problem. And the fact that whites are still part, mainly part of global homo and that they want to, uh, they want to get the picket fence. And I mean, look, I, I don't think I'm that immune to that either. And it's also, it's a struggle as to what, what strategy is going to win. Uh, 
and it's tough and you know sticking your head up uh, when nobody else is is almost surely going to get your head chopped off so right now it's tough to say but i would also add regardless of the mentality or strategy that we use if a group of people are needed they're not going to be disposed of they will maybe exploited but they will not be eliminated the difference with the american indians and the whites at least at the moment is that the american indians quite frankly and i i don't say this with any uh malevolence but they quite frankly don't have any use uh, other than looking like uh, pets for people on NPR to talk to, to, sh- to virtue signal towards. Um, and th- they, they have some casinos, I guess, but I mean, it's a very sad state of affairs. If you ever visit or drive through an Indian reservation, you see a, a tremendous amount of poverty. Uh, you don't see anyone living traditionally. You basically see them living in trailers. Uh, alcoholism has been a known problem. Violence is a problem. Um, just lack of jobs. It's a tough situation. And nobody is really uh, clamoring to hire uh, American Indian coders. They're much more inclined to hire an actual Indian for that job. Uh, But I do not know what you would get an American Indian to do for you other than, again, be a, a, a zoo animal for, you know, your your liberal they, they cause put them in I mean, government jobs is another way yeah, which is basically a, a bullshit job but that's, that's I mean, one of them i think the main source of employment for for american indians is yeah. working for the system yeah is they're supposed to be their enemy yeah though. it could be like park I mean, rangers or guides or something which actually probably do a good job at uh, they probably do know the the nature better than most people um which i mean look i don't want people misunderstand me i i don't have any again any malevolence towards the American Indians. I'd be happy if they could, you know, have their own land and hunt buffalo, but they just don't seem to be doing it. Uh and the the fact remains is that nobody needs them. And if whites find themselves in that situation and working class whites have already sort of found themselves in that situation, that's when you're in trouble because nobody gives a fuck if you go off the grid. Uh if you're important, people start noticing that you're gone because things start working. And that's when you have p- real power. Um, if you're if you're basically just an honest person and you work for a living, that's when you have power. Now, if you're a parasite and you're evil and you know how to manipulate people, you can still be uh, re- retain that top position uh, like other groups in this country and not be productive and not be needed. But you have to be very uh, hyper vigilant about crushing all opposition and maintaining controls of the levers of power. Um, and American Indians and sadly whites are just not very good at that. Um, they're, they're too straightforward of a people. So I, I don't know. Uh, but I think at the moment there are middle-class and upper-class whites that are needed by the system. So I don't think they're going to suffer the same fate as American Indians at the moment. That may change in the future though. Well, there's a few things I'd like to say to that. So, firstly, this probably the main contributing factor to the state of the American Indians and other sort of small uh, groups and large ones too uh, is a lack of leadership. And, you know, people aren't just the masses of people don't just organically, you know, spontaneously revolt or, 
create institutions for themselves that are that are healthy for their well-being and you know long-term survival they you need leaders to do that and this is exactly what the fbi has and the system as a whole but the particular this is the specialty of the fbi is uh, crushing the leadership cadre and crushing the morale of the people that's that's what they do that's what cointelpro is really focused on that those types of operations are about cutting off the head so the system is really well geared to deal with targeting specific individuals and without specific individuals who are going to take the lead you know and go up against big competition you know you're going up against all the money and the guns in the world and all you have is you know faith in your people and love for your people uh, that's a that's a that's a tough one and not many people are able and willing to do that so it, the, the deck is already stacked in the wrong way. Another point I would have about uh, the white majority in this country is that ultimately numbers aren't that important. I mean, they, I'm not saying they don't matter, but the real danger of Americanism, of American liberalism, capitalism, whatever, is it's what it does to the spirit. You know, it's... Like I said earlier, the the actual physical warfare against or with rather, I mean, it's cut both ways. I have to emphasize that I'm not bleeding heart over here saying like we stole the, the North American continent. No, we conquered and won the North American continent. OK, no apologies there. That being said, that was less destructive to these people than what came next. In, in a similar analogous way, I would say something like uh, Soviet communism was much less destructive than American liberalism. You know, in your face, brutality and warfare can actually do a lot to harden the resolve of a people. Yeah, I mean, they actually had families the in the Soviet soul, Union. Yeah, it's and I think that's the real danger. I mean, the parallels are very real when it comes to, you know, the economic incentives uh, that just tear apart communities. They don't. There is no incentive for people to to stay where their you know grandparents are buried. They're incentivized to go off to the cities, right? Yep. You know, it's the whole system is rigged against forming real communities and having real identities. And I will also add that the biggest enemies that they had were internal, really. I mean, there is the federal government, the American, there's Zog, right? Which is the enemy of all peoples across the world, except for the Jews. But more importantly, the more, their more immediate enemy were the ones uh, amongst them, was the inner enemy. The inner enemy is always more dangerous than the outer enemy. And in their case, it was... The Quislings, who, again, I thought was very interesting that the traitor, I mean, not it's not surprising, but it's interesting to hear it in the context of, for example, this documentary, which is, you know, not, I mean, it's not like some right wing documentary, right? And it's interesting to see it get pointed out that the mixed race individuals are the ones that are going to be more likely to uh, be traitors and system loyalists. But I think that that's a model going forward. Failed to learn a lot of the lessons of, of radical politics that took place 
during the Cold War because they viewed it as, as something that was like happening to other people and to, oh, there's, you know, dirty commies or something. Well, well be, uh, be, reality, be specific if you could. What, what lessons do you think the right missed and why? That the police organizations of the federal government are, uh, they're designed for only the, the only purpose is that they have exist for is the suppression of dissent. And the American right felt that in the 1970s and throughout the Cold War, they felt that they would never be on the other side of that. The dissent to them meant, oh, that's communist subversion. They never never could understand that they would be in this position. I mean, some people did. Like, there were some people who were a little bit more ahead of the curve on this. But this is a minority of people. But these these are enemy institutions, and the the big enemy has always and will always be the American federal government. And to that point, uh, I will read a, a quote that from the late Russell Means, where he said, "What's happening in my country is also happening in your country. You don't even know it, but you're the Indians of the 21st century, and that's very sad." 